Hello, and welcome to Speaking Culturally. Today, we are joined by culinary historian, educator, and award-winning author, Michael W. Twitty. Thanks for calling in, Michael. Hi, how you doing? Now, this is the third installment of our series that examines how do we interpret slavery going forward. It's a very hot topic now, from plantation weddings to heritage tourism. What do you personally think we can do better when interpreting enslavement in America? First of all, we need to set our our goals and our boundaries out at the offset. And what I mean by that is that we have a lot of people going forward in generations that think this is some cruel joke against black people. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear about slavery. They think it's just some negative, toxic nonsense that's been put on black people and really doesn't have to be confronted, doesn't have to be learned about, doesn't have to be dealt with. And um, I'm speaking as an educator, but also speaking as um, a naturalist. Um, and I'm using it in our cultural sense, not in their sense. Okay. Those are two very different terms for us. Because black nationalism for us means that we are a nation with a nation. We are a sovereign people. We were never asked to be brought here. Right. And we're a part of a larger diaspora. And a larger diaspora has a very unique history and, and underpinnings. And they have to be dealt with as a unique story. We're not any of the group of immigrants. With all of that, none of that stuff applies to us. None of it. And one thing our our young people and some of our and when I say young people, I mean anybody who didn't wear the shoe. I think I, you rarely hear people who were who had grandparents who were enslaved or new people who were of the sharecropping generation talking about. I don't want to hear about no slavery because the bottom line is they knew they respected us because they knew what they went through to get us here. So we have to do a better job speaking to millennial and generation um, Z and, and beyond folks about slavery because interpretation should be one of the most powerful ways to get to them. But unfortunately, when people see black interpreters of those generations, they, they think they're seeing some kind of chronic, some kind of kunic. And I, and I really want to stress to those of you who are sympathetic to, to what we do, to it's important to create a conversation within our community that says, any other community that's had an oppressive event has learned how to confront and deal with it and to their, and to their better. I mean, this is not, this isn't an act in, oh, God, woe is me. This is an act of, okay, I only got, only got up to go. I'm only going to go forward, upward, and this is the basis of my strength, the basis of my challenge, the basis of my will to not only survive and succeed, but bulldoze. Anything that gets in my way, and anyone that gets in my way. So I'm very. I'm. See, people think when I do this thing, oh, he goes, he cooks the food. And, oh God, he go cook them fried chicken. I'm literally telling people who would come to my interpretation, who are who are us, our children, our children's children. I tell them, you come from kings and kings, we're exiled in chains. You also come from artisans and poets and dancers and servants. And peasants. <laughs> and everybody, right? Everybody was in that damn boat, suffering together. And out of that, they made one of the most impressive human survival stories 
ever written. We were never supposed to be on this podcast talking. We were not supposed to be here. And every time you wake up and you get to the privilege of turning on your television, <laughs> you got to thank the ancestors, you know. But it's on us as interpreters to really begin to, to really help people understand what we do. We bring a face to something that has been so erased from the American landscape and story. The only time our story was that they wanted us to tell our story was when we sounded like we were on their team. We were obedient, subservient, and submissive. So for us to tell our story on our own terms, in our own way, is one of the most revolutionary things we can do. My white visitors, whether they like it or not, especially if they're white Southerners, will, 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 will come, away, come away from my program understanding that they were Africanized by their deep and sustained contact with black people. Whether they liked us or not, whether they hated us or not, they couldn't help but be culturally affected by us, hence all the appropriation and also assimilation into our culture. So when you let the one, I mean, you should see look on people's faces like, oh, heck, my secret's been exposed. <laughs> and I'm like, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't, it was never a secret. And that's the point. This was never a secret. And no, this was not acceptable. This was the most unacceptable form of cultural genocide on earth. And I'm making a very distinct, you know, you know, common. So that's the big distinction. I mean, these were people who were predominantly kept alive to suffer, but not suffering for suffering's sake. And that's another point about slavery we need to get across. Enslavement was not about suffering for suffering's sake. The cruelty actually wasn't the point. Capitalism with a big C was the point. Cruelty as the point was the, was the means by which enslavement was maintained as a system. But it wasn't, I mean, I, I hate to burst the bubble of black folks, but it wasn't just because we were black. You know, you, if you could, you could get out of slavery if you paid capitalism a huge due. If you pay the exit tax, whatever that is, and whatever time you lived in, whatever period you lived in, depending upon the economic circumstances of that area, you could buy your way out of this institution. As long as you moved away, ran away, didn't live anywhere near it to affect the institution further. We have to get, we have to get through our head. So for me, that's the first and foremost thing is this, we have to improve how, how enslavement is seen, get our own people on board, get our own people to the plantations, to urban sites where slavery happened, to get our own people there because if we're there, we can do the policing, we can do the suggesting, we can do the determining of how our history is interpreted. My research focuses on how climate change impacts the cultural heritage of coastal communities of color, uh, specifically the Gullah Geechee community in South Carolina. When I travel there for research, I like to focus on the cultivation of crops uh, their ancestors would have grown. In some cases, there are descendants who are still growing Carolina gold rice, um, the very crop that brought that, brought that community into this country. Uh, you being a culinary historian, how can we use this source in interpreting slavery in America? Hmm. What way can we see enslavement on our dinner table? Well, we can see um, a cultural transfer. I prefer to see the conversation among our ancestors. They had to make decisions about what was going to survive and what was going to go, what they could live without, and what they had to live with as was. They just had to really, I mean, these were conversations that when you learn about enslavement, you don't really hear about it. We're very... In America, the conversation about enslavement largely circles around white people's guilt, right? not black people's living and surviving and thriving and, and making a way out of no way and also just the process by which we become an African-American people 
And that involves talking about black agency. Those recipes are black agency, records of black agency. And of course, for us, a recipe is not the same. It's, it's more in line with what, what most black and brown uh, people around the world do, which is you take what you have and you, you make it work according to the seasons, according to nature, according to taste, according to taste memory, blood memory. And this is why we have so many things, you know, I like to point out leafy greens, red pepper, uh, uh, tubers like sweet potato, cassava, yam, rice, um, melons. So, you know, a lot of melon species, they come from Africa. It's not just, oh, black people like watermelon. No, watermelon and muskmelon, um, even the little kiwi melon, it's not a kiwi melon at all. That's actually a South African melon. Mm-hmm. They grow commercially in, in New Zealand. So we have a lot of things that come from our mother continent, cola, coffee, um, types of herbal teas like robos. Um, Tamarind is actually an African native. Black-eyed peas, cow peas are native to Africa. Thousands of year olds. I mean, talking about thousands of year old foods that somehow survived the Middle Passage because they they were used as seeds for steerage that became planted once people got here. People forget that Africans were in charge of their own survival in the earliest years of slavery. There was no such thing as, oh, well, I'm going to hook you guys up. You know, that's, how they, that's what they told us, right? Right. We're going to hook you guys up. We're going to treat you like human pets, and you get, eventually you'll learn civilization. That's the, that's the 1950s way of looking at slavery. We know that's a lie. We know our ancestors got here. They made lean-tos. They made homes like they had in Africa. They grew crops like they had in Africa. They had to go around foraging and learning the environment according to centuries of education from Africa. And they added that with whatever knowledge they got from whatever Native Americans were still around and the Europeans of the lower class who they shared dwellings with. I mean, these were, you know, people forget that lower class Europeans and us were in the same spaces mm-hmm. and often had the same kind of cultural base. These were, these were agricultural peasants who lived in the same kind of house, lived pretty much the same kind of existence. And the so-called technological advantage Europeans had over Africans was really not a thing with them. I mean, they all had an iron hoe, all had a backbreaking work, all had, you know, got up with the sun, went down with the, they were down with the, with the same. That was the way of life, you know. So there, that's why there was so much of a culture to build around. They, they were so disparate from their cultural origins it wouldn't have been as easy to create a common culture. And in that table, in that experience, we're also reenacting the, the path of our ancestors. Because, you know, you ask a black person, what are you? You say, I'm African, I'm Native American, I'm European. Well, that's what I just said, right? They yeah. made the culture. So that's what that food tells you, the journey of your family. You know, if you're Gullah Geechee or a Gullah Geechee descendant, which is very important to remember. I mean, people think that you know, Gullah just stayed in the islands, in the low country. They forget the domestic slave trade siphoned off thousands of black people from the low country and put them into the deep south, you know, right along with people who were from Virginia and Chesapeake and Maryland and sent them to the, the middle south, which is where soul food was born. You know, soul food um, was a child of older black colonial traditions on the coast, the Chesapeake, the low country, and the lower Mississippi Valley and Gulf Coast. And soul food is really what happens when all three of those groups are sold into the southern Midlands 
And that food culture becomes the basis of what we think of as soul food. That's why black people get annoyed the hell out of me. They'd be like, oh, no, I got to be like this. And it's only been like that for a very short time of our history. Right. And that short time of our history, as you well know, was the time when we were working in cotton plantations in the Middle South, and it come from all these different parts. And before that, we're in Africa, all different parts of West Central Africa. So our food story is really a food journey and, a, and, 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 a, and the story of our footsteps across space and time. What was it that got you interested in culinary history? I'm a child of popular culture. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm a child of television and documentaries and PBS and um, cable because, um, quite frankly, it encouraged me to seek out – I mean, I was already a reader. I was already a reader. Um, and I had, you know, a family that loved to cook and eat. Um, but any time I saw food represented on, and, you know, in, on TV, et cetera, I was like, whoa, that's, that's, that's a way to do it. You know, cause you show people how it's done. And I would hear, you know, chefs on TV talk about the history of dishes, where they came from. And I remember, I remember reading a book when I was younger, <clears throat> in the eighties, we had really good trivia books for kids. And, um, this particular book was like, it's like a food almanac and it showed, Thomas Jefferson bringing a silver-belled dish to his table in an apron with his red ponytail tied behind his head, <laughs> wearing a toque. And I said, this is some, some something. And I didn't know why I felt that. I just knew something was wrong with it. So I borrowed the book from the library, took it home to my grandmother. My grandmother was like, that's a lie. And if you ever have a Southern grandmother, a Southern black grandmother, the phrase, that's a lie, is deeper than that's, that they're lying. Yes, indeed. It means it's inherently, sensibly wrong. You know, it's like when you're telling a, 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 a tale, that's what they'll say. They'll say, you're telling tales now. But when you have committed the ultimate act of denying something she did that was wrong or something wrong got done, the phrase is, you a lie. Not liar. You a liar. So um, my grandmother said, that's a, they, they a lie, right? And I, I, and I was like, okay, why? And she said, because it was the black people did the cook and did the work. Light bulb goes off in my head that, oh, no, 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 there was no, this was, this was us in that kitchen. And then my grandfather gave me a book by Gilberto Freyer, um, the, the, uh, the father of Brazilian sociology and anthropology. That was called the Masters and the Slaves. And I learned that in Brazil, they had no problem admitting that a large part of the culture was essentially African. They may not, they may not have had any sort of pure love for black people. They may have had extensive black, anti-blackness and black exploitation. They couldn't write the history without us, and they wouldn't even dare to. And so he has a phrase, a phrase in the book. He talks about the impact of the African, and he says that when he went to South Carolina, to Charleston, he said it was just like Brazil to him. Everything was just like Brazil. He's like, this is what I grew up with. He said, this is no different. This is the same culture, but the Southern white people, they don't know it. So all those things impacted me. I mean, a million and one things. Um, Alex Haley, um, August Wilson, Tony Morrison, having books in my house, like From Slavery to Freedom, or John Blassengame, or uh, John Michael Vletch, or... Uh, Robert Ferris Thompson, 
Malefia Santi. I mean, I grew up with a rich variety of, of women and men scholars who, um, you know, told me different parts of the story. And so I was able to weave them together for my own um, edification, but also it helped that I started very young because these are things that, as you well know, can be the more, the older you get, the more overwhelming they are. And sometimes when you digest some of this information in a very sort of matter of fact way, it helps deal with the other fact, which is that emotionally the impact is, is can be devastating sometimes. There's sometimes when people don't realize when people study black early black history, everybody has a moment where they just kind of put their glasses down, put the close the book, shake their head and go, I, I can't do this anymore right now because it's so intense. So that was me. I mean, I, in the kitchen with my people at the library at home, uh, you know, developing a huge library of my own to kind of like, you know, pass down. So I, so, I mean, I needed to possess our history um, and not just let it possess me. Now, Michael, when you conduct uh, workshops and demonstrations, what is it that fuels your presentations, uh, specifically when, you, when, uh, when, when talking about the, the people who are in the audience at these events? I think when they begin to remember. I love it when, especially when an elder, one of our elders testifies. The smile comes up on their face and their grandchildren with them, and they're like, I got, they got that pinch, you know that pinch, you know, I'm going to give you. Right in the double your back and the ouch, you know, you can't say ouch. And they're happy because they get to show their grandchildren something. Or even people who are just like, who just grew up with that. You know, we forget, you know, the people of the Great Migration forget that, the people who are the legacy of the Great Migration forget that that life never died. That rural black life never died. It's still here. It's still here. And um, if you didn't live it, you you saw it. You saw the the remnants around you. And live with the after effects of it. So it wasn't like it just went somewhere else, you know. Um, so people will smile. They'll start telling stories. White Southerners will tell stories. And sometimes, for the most part, they're respectful. Uh, immigrants will tell stories of what they do at home. You know, well, home is here, but their old home. And talk about how, like, oh, in the Philippines we do this. Oh, back in so-and-so in, in, in Russia we did that. Oh, over there in Brazil. Oh, okay, over there in Vietnam. Okay, here in, in India, we call that this. You know, one Somali brother, he said, for, you know, he brought his children to one of my events, and he said he, he just grabbed them, picked them in the air, and, you know, almost shook them and just smiled and said, we need black people grow everything. <laughs> you know, it was, it was cool, you know. Um, I like making those human connections. I'm not, I mean, I'm not there to browbeat to hurt anybody's feelings and make people feel shame or guilt, shame about slavery or guilty for whatever. I just want to tell the truth. I just want to tell the truth. And the truth is, is that we have this very complex, nuanced food history that, no, it isn't just about pleasure. It's, a lot of, it's about a lot of pain, too. And it's not just about pain. You know, the opposite of being oppressed is taking taking pleasure in pride in your culture. So for me, it's the it's it's those folks, but it's also kids going, "Wow, how you do that? I want to do that." You know, getting excited about history, and it's also the I guess the last thing will be the moment when, if I've done right, something I've cooked looks really good and smells really good, and everybody wants it, and I can't I can't let them have it, right? Because you know you know health code rules, right? 
But everybody in that room, no matter what background they come from, no matter what who they vote for, what they believe, they want a spoon. And that's 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 beautiful. To me that's really beautiful. Because so it they, take, like- they take it away. You know, they take that away from the experience. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. It sounds like you're bringing to light one of the ways uh, to better interpret slavery. Um, everybody has to eat. You know, we notice smells and we connect to them. Uh, we connect to the memory and the heritage uh, that those smells uh, conjure up. How do you harness your talents, uh, your culinary and historical talents, to help tell the narrative of slavery in historic spaces? You know what? You demand. This hasn't been, you know, this has not been easy. I mean, I remember having to demand my presence in these museums. You know, they were content with white women ghosts telling our story. So they, first of all, they got them there for free. And we both know that that's not, that's not good enough. You know, that's, it's, it's, that's, that's not honest. So um, that's one thing. Number two is finding out ways to just tell people in every single way the importance of this narrative and its legacy. I, want people to, I really want people to, to understand that they're not free from it. It doesn't matter how far away you're born from it who you think you are, as long as that blood is in your veins and those bones tell that genetic story, that historical story of, of, of where you've been and who you are, black, white, brown, whatever, this is a part of you. And if it's going to be a part of you and everybody has to eat and the, the, that food sustains those genes and food is a part of taste memory and blood memory, this, the reason why people go to it and they huddle to it is because they know there's an essential part of who they are. What they need. It's a self-understanding. We, we, we like things that tell us who we are. We like horoscopes, and we like, we like birthday. Oh, if you're born on this day, da 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 da, da. Oh, you're from, my, you're from my country, my region, my people, my state. We like things we can identify with, and that's why, we, that's why people come, come to these things. I think some people have the mistaken belief that this is some whip and chain show, and I, I think, okay. I don't I don't do S and M dinners, you know. That's not my style. <laughs> you know. But if you want if you want, you know, all the pieces and want to get your hands dirty, then I got you. Michael, I thank you for calling in and giving us some food for thought, no pun intended. Um but I wanna give you the floor of any last thoughts that you may have. So I just wanna tell people right now, especially if you're African American, Afro Caribbean, African immigrant we have to tell our different parts of the story, our narrative to each other. And we have to respect where each other's coming from. We are a family. We are one people. We have so many different branches. It's insane. We're, we're, we're so diverse within ourselves. It could take a lifetime to understand just who we are. So I want to encourage folks who are listening to this podcast, who are from the heritage of the Black Atlantic, to talk to your neighbor who is also like you. Break down those walls and barriers. Have a conversation with your children about your family history. And, and most importantly, preserve those recipes. Preserve that jollof rice. Preserve that browning to make the oxtail. Preserve that barbecue sauce. Preserve that makshu. Uh, preserve those Eastern North Carolina hush puppies and that Carolina purlu. And, you know, um, those Virginia fried apples. Preserve that Garifuna food, preserve those maroon um, jerked pork, preserve the Ital vegetables stew, you know, preserve your feijoada, preserve your rice and beans, wherever your rice and beans are from, 
and give your neighbor the credit that their rice and beans are probably as good as your rice and beans, even though you don't probably do them the same way. But the ideal thing here is that from, you know, Rio and Akara to Chikinyasa to Benachin to Emesino, Nyamachoma, our foods across our African world, a black world, are the lightning rod of the planet's diet. And we should have as much love and respect for each other as we do for other people's cuisines and culture and use that as a means to not only understand each other, but to create a basis for a future where we feel empowered and justified by the basic fact of our own survival. Again, Michael, thank you for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. This has been great. Mm-hmm.